And as they go, I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 324. 2 Samuel chapter 1. When I was in middle school, there was this kid who was a year older than me. For the sake of our story, we'll call him Brendan. Now, I don't know where Brendan is uh, these days or what he's up to. He could be, for all I know, a world-class brain surgeon or decorated veteran or a missionary or something like those things. But when we were in middle school, let's just say he was not on any of those trajectories. Uh, Brandon was, to put it politely, annoying. Now, I want to be fair to Brendan. I don't know what his home life was like, and he's certainly not the only annoying middle schooler there ever has been. Um, but he excelled to, if I could adapt Proverbs 31, 29, many middle schoolers are annoying, but he surpassed them all. And uh, when we were in middle school, you would, you know, you would go to PE with, there would be two grades. So you would sometimes be in there with uh, other students a year older than you or a year younger than you. And we were in PE together this one year. And our gym teacher, Mr. McBride, had us all playing volleyball and uh, Brendan was antagonizing everybody, including his own teammates. I mean, he, it, didn't, it didn't matter if you were on his team or not on his team. He was just going to talk trash to you and all that kind of stuff. And uh, this particular day, however, he got his comeuppance. He was standing directly in front of the person serving. And something happened with the serve. The ball came off the fist the wrong way. I don't know if it was intentional or accidental. Never asked. But he got drilled right in the back of the head. And uh, I would be lying to you if I said that I didn't laugh. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't feel a sense of satisfaction in that moment. I even remember looking over at Mr. McBride to see how he was responding. And I caught him sort of, you know, looking away, pretending like he, he didn't see what happened. Um, I'm sure you've probably had that experience, whether you... You felt satisfied because someone got what you thought was coming to them. And within the context of First and Second Samuel, uh, given how Saul has treated David with such vicious hatred, we would expect David to react to Saul's death with that same kind of satisfied relief, sort of point his finger and laugh and say, finally Saul's gotten what he deserves. But that's not the way David responds. He, he responds in a very surprising way. So let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're, we're going to begin in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turns not back, and the sword of Saul returns not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm very distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. 
Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Achinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word, and I pray, Lord, this morning that you would be pleased to use me as a, uh, a jar of clay, an ordinary vessel, Lord, to, to convey your word and to make it appear all the more glorious because of my weakness and ordinariness. And so, Lord, um, would you speak by your spirit God, would you help us to hear? Would you open our hearts to respond in faith? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, 2 Samuel opens with three scenes that all demonstrate the same point. We saw the first scene last Sunday in chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And a Malachite man came to Saul and or came to David, pardon me, and, and claimed to have killed. Saul, and of course the man was lying, but David took him at his word, and rather than rewarding him, David had him executed. He even asked the Amalekite, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? The problem with this Amalekite was he did not fear the Lord, and unlike the Amalekite, David did fear the Lord. And it's precisely because David feared the Lord and acted blamelessly that he is qualified to be king. That's what all three of these scenes demonstrate. The first one um, last Sunday and then the second two this morning. They all demonstrate the same point that David was above reproach in the way he became the king. He has not pursued the throne sinfully, but he has consistently honored the Lord's timing and he has honored Saul as the Lord's anointed despite their personal differences. And so these two scenes before us this morning give further evidence of that blameless character. So I'm going to summarize all three of those scenes under this big idea that a blameless king is a gift to God's people. A blameless king is a gift to God's people. And we'll see that big idea unfold in the next two scenes just as we saw it in the first scene. So two scenes for us this morning. First, I'm going to summarize by saying that David laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan. David laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan. And this is the author's way of showing us how David is blameless. Now, earlier in chapter 1, David and his men burst out in this spontaneous act of, of mourning and grief. Glance back with me at chapter 1, verse 11. And notice what the writer told us back there. 
Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now compare that with chapter 1 verse 17, the verse we began with this morning. And David lamented this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. So unlike that first spontaneous outburst of grief earlier in chapter 1, this lamentation was written down. And it was written down with the intention of it, very, from the very beginning, of it being taught and repeated. So uh, we don't know the words that David and his men said in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 when they were fasting and mourning and weeping, but these words have been written down so that we can read them and so that uh, God's people would hear them and even repeat them. And so before we even dive into this lament specifically, I want us just to ask broadly, what does it mean to lament? What is that? A lament is a, a bit different than an outburst of grief, and it's more than a complaint. There's a, a, an Old Testament commentator named Dale Ralph Davis, and he gives one of the most helpful explanations of biblical lament that I've ever heard. So I want you to listen to what he says. He said, a lament is a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written read, learned, practiced, repeated. A lament differs from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of grief like those of 2 Samuel 1, 11, and 12. A lament is no less sorrowful or sincere, but it is a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. And then he says this, a lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. That's a very helpful and concise definition. A lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. Now, of course, the grief is not diminished because it's thought out or because it's written down or because it's repeated. Instead, it is a way of engaging the whole person in this sorrow, the mind as well as the emotions. Dale Ralph Davis continues, he says, in a written lament, words cannot simply be dumped or gushed or mushed as in initial grief. Here one cannot simply vomit out feelings but must choose words. Not that the, not that the lament is cold, objective, or detached. Rather, the intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of one's mind to produce structured sorrow, a sort of authorized version of distress, a kind of coherent agony. In a lament, therefore, words are carefully selected, crafted, honed to express loss as closely yet fully as possible. Now, this is where I would commend to you the Psalms. The Psalms can be really helpful in this regard because they are filled with a, a, a wide range of emotions. And the Psalms, while they come from God, they're inspired, breathed out by God, they're also at the same time addressed to God. So think about that for a second. The, the Psalms are breathed out by God, they're God's Word, and yet they're addressed to God. So the Psalms are God-approved, God-ordained, God-given ways that we can speak to God. If, you, if, you, if you're worried about saying the wrong thing, go to the Psalms, and you're not going to say the wrong thing to God if you pray the Psalms to Him. And the Psalms don't just address the joys of life. In fact, the most common type of Psalm is lament. 
the most common type of psalm is this thoughtful grief. This saying to the Lord, here's what is wrong, and would you please fix it? Here's, here's what's on my heart. There, there's a time to let sorrow just kind of bubble up and burst forth as it did when David and his men mourned and wept and fasted until evening. But there's also a time to pause, to slow down and to be thoughtful. We sometimes assume that we kind of have this pop psychology that says all you need to do is you just need to express what's on your heart. You know, the worst thing you can do is, is to bottle your feelings up. We have to keep in mind that what's on your heart may be sinful or, or short-sighted. You do not have all the wisdom that God has. And you certainly are not as righteous as God is, nor am I. And so you do need to express what's on your heart. But as you do that, you, you should be asking, is this honoring to God? Does this demonstrate faith in Him? And so one thing that you might do is you might sort of say, okay, here's what's on my heart. Can I go to the Psalms? and find a psalm that expresses this to God in a, in a way that is honoring to Him and that demonstrates faith in Him. And as you do that, you're acknowledging, okay, Lord, I don't have all the wisdom that you have. I, I don't know why you have allowed this to happen. But you have. And you're wise and you're powerful. And I know that this didn't catch you off guard. And I know that you didn't drop the ball on this. Nothing has slipped through your hands. And so lament gives you an opportunity to express your feelings while also asking God to recalibrate your feelings. So you can say what it is you want to say, but then say, Lord, if I'm wrong, would you forgive me? And would you help me to have more wisdom? Here's, here's one last bit from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, I wonder if there is a principle for all the Lord's people when they lose, especially Christian friends or loved ones. Along with our emotional grief, should we not also express our reflective grief? Why not write down our grief in careful, thoughtful lament form and offer it up to God as such and do so again and again? The sorrows and wounds God, God's people receive from their losses are not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional cleansing. And sometimes in the church there is such an impatience with grief. But the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing and it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish, in images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize our discouragement. And then he says this, Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? So I would encourage you as we look through David's lament you may or may not have ever experienced what David has experienced here. But if nothing else, simply pay attention to the fact that he writes down what it is that he is, wants to say to the Lord. And uh, he intends to be able to go back and to think on it again, to reassess it in light of God's will and in light of further events that unfold. And we can, we can do the same thing. So... Now that we've considered lament broadly, let's look specifically at what David says. Notice how he begins in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is the refrain of this lament. He says it three times. 
once in verse 19 and then again in verse 25 and verse 27. And I've, I've sometimes heard people use that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, when they want to celebrate someone's downfall. Uh, it's used ironically, you know. Someone you don't like messes up uh, or they fail in some way. And you know, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, there is no hint of irony or, or sarcasm in what David says here. And I sometimes have to remind myself that sarcasm is not a fruit of the Spirit. David is totally sincere when he says how the mighty have fallen. He's referring, of course, to Saul and Jonathan, and he's not taking any delight in this. In fact, you could argue that Jonathan's death was a greater loss for Saul, for Israel, than, than Saul's death. Unlike his father, Jonathan was a man of character. He was a courageous leader who feared the Lord and put the interests of Israel ahead of his own. That's certainly what David means when he says down in verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, I'm curious if your you know, eyebrows raised a bit when you read that verse. That verse has led a lot of modern readers to sort of think that maybe there's something more to Jonathan and David's relationship than a typical friendship. But that kind of interpretation says more about modern, modern readers than it does about these two men. When David says that Jonathan's love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women, you have to ask yourself, in what way did Jonathan love David? And the answer is, he loved David in that he laid aside any claim to the throne of his father Saul. Jonathan is the one who should have become king after Saul, but he laid aside his, interest to it, his interests to advance and to protect David. No woman in David's life, not his mother, not his Either of his two wives, no woman had done that because no woman was in a position to do that. There was no woman who could give up the throne of Israel for David. Only Jonathan can do that, and that's what David means when he says that your love has surpassed the love of women. It's because Jonathan feared the Lord and knew that David was the Lord's anointed that he so laid aside his rights and his interests for David's behalf. And it's because David feared the Lord that he lamented Saul as well as Jonathan. It makes all the sense in the world that David would mourn Jonathan's death. Here was a man who was uh, a better friend to him than any other person who ever lived. Here is a man who uh, protected him when, his, when Saul tried to kill him. Here's a man who advanced David, who always pushed him forward. So it makes sense that David would lament Jonathan. But the way he grieves for Saul is surprising given all that's happened. Saul was, was more than a nuisance to David. Saul was not just annoying. Saul was viciously hateful. He tried to kill David over and over and over again. We might expect David to celebrate Saul's death, but he takes no delight in Saul's downfall. In fact, I would suggest to you, I was thinking, celebrating someone's failure is, is evidence that you're not fearing God. That's the difference here between the Amalekite and uh, David. And, and even it's, it's even the difference between what we would expect David to do and what he actually does. 
David feared the Lord. He's not just thinking on a purely human plane. He's thinking about the Lord. And so if you receive a kind of satisfaction or delight when someone you dislike or someone you think has mistreated you fails, then you have left out the most important person, capital P, in the equation. That's God. You're not fearing the Lord. You're not considering what pleases Him or what would honor Him. You can hear in David's words where his concern really lies. In other words, you can hear that he's fearing the Lord, even in what he says in this lament. His concern is never only for Saul and Jonathan on a personal level, although that's part of it. David is concerned with how the defeat of Israel's king is going to reflect on Israel's God. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, Tell it not in Gath. What, what does he not want to be told in Gath? That the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These were two of the five major Philistine cities. So don't let the news of Saul's death make it to Gath or to Ashkelon, these Philistine cities. Why? Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. It riled David up to think of this news of Saul and Jonathan's death reaching these Philistine cities. And he's not just concerned about the Israelites being embarrassed. He's thinking about the Philistines being led further into spiritual blindness. David knew that the news of Saul's death was going to reach these cities, and when it did, people were going to be singing the praise of their so-called gods for giving them the victory over the God of Israel. What riles David up is not just his loss of a friend, and it's not just Israel's embarrassment at the hand of the Philistines. It's the thought of these Philistine cities, the, 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 the pagan temples being filled with people blinded to the glory of the Lord and them singing, glory, glory to Dagon. Glory, glory to Ashtoreth, for our gods have given us victory over the gods of Israel. The Philistines were going to interpret this defeat not as the Lord's judgment on Saul, but as their gods triumph over the Lord. And that prospect is what drives David to lament. And so when I say that we see David's blamelessness in that he laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan... He's not just lamenting the loss of Saul and Jonathan. He's lamenting the dishonor and the indignity of the Lord. And so we see God's gift of a blameless king first in that way. The second way we see God's gift of a blameless king is that David honors the men who honored Saul. We see that in the first seven verses of chapter 2. David honors the men who honored Saul. Chapter 2 uh, marks this important transition. David has been in exile, as it were. He's been living among the Philistines. And at the beginning of chapter 2, as we've seen him do before, he inquires of the Lord through one of the prophets or, or through the stones in the priestly garment. However he does that, he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells David to return to Judah. And so he's returning to the promised land, specifically to Hebron. And this is where David begins his reign as king. And what is David's first act as king? His first act as king is to send messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So for 
a reminder, some background of what happened. This is in 1 Samuel 31 after Saul died. When Saul and his three sons died in battle, the Philistines took their bodies and defiled them. They cut off their heads. They, they stripped their bodies naked and hung them up on the wall of a prominent city. Then they took Saul's armor and they placed it in the temple of one of their gods. So that's David's concern was legitimate. The, Saul's death was being used as Philistine propaganda to demonstrate our gods are superior to Israel's God. But when the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard what had happened, they embark on this very dangerous mission to go and recover the bodies of Saul and his sons, and they succeed. They, they get their bodies back. I don't know if uh, you know wild animals had taken some things off or whatever, but they burned what remained of the bodies. They buried their bones, and then they fasted for seven days. David hears news of this here in 2 Samuel 2, and it's extraordinary the way he responds. Not only did he, in chapter 1, refuse to reward the man who claimed to kill Saul, but now he positively honors the men who acted valiantly to give dignity to Saul in death. These men honored Saul. They honored the man who had repeatedly tried to kill David. And yet David honors them for their courage and for their loyalty to the Lord's anointed. He says to them, in verse 5, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. So here at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we have three scenes all demonstrating the same point, that David has not pursued the throne sinfully. That was going to be a question that people had well, how is it that one of Saul's descendants didn't become king? And as we're going to find next week, all of Saul's sons are not dead just yet. And so these three scenes at the beginning are a way of demonstrating that David did not try to take the throne. Instead, he waited patiently for God's plan to unfold in his timing. He consistently deferred to God's prerogative um, choosing to honor his anointed one, even if that man was sinful and viciously hateful to him. David has not only refused to take Saul's life when he had opportunity, but now he executes the man who claims to have killed Saul. Uh, he laments Saul and leads the people to do so, and then he honors the men who honored Saul in death. And so David has shown himself to be a blameless king, a qualified king for God's people, and a blameless king as a gift to God's people. There's a big problem here, in fact, two problems that are not so easy to see just yet, but we need to kind of uh, cheat and glance ahead a little bit. There are two major problems with David as king. First is that he was far from perfect. Being blameless in these three instances is not the same as being sinless or even blameless in all instances. David would not always show himself to be above reproach as he does here at the beginning of his reign as king. So the first problem with David is he's, he's far from perfect. And the second major problem is that like every other king, David eventually died. 
That was true of all Israel's kings. The very best and the very worst, they all died. And so what we need is we need a king who is not just blameless, but who is sinless. And we need a king who will never die. You see where I'm going here? It's not David. David's not the one we're looking for. He's not the anointed one we're looking for. He's not the king we need. He's not the shepherd that God has given to us. The shepherd that God has given to us is Jesus. He is the one king who is perfect. And while he died, he rose from death, never to die again. There is no other king of whom it could be said, as Peter said, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When you see David here refusing to retaliate against those who tried to kill him, and in fact even honoring them and saying, as it were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We're seeing here an imperfect shadow of what would happen about a thousand years later when Jesus would die on the cross, when he would refuse to return hatred with hatred. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He feared the Lord more than he feared the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, more than he feared the Pharisees who came and wagged their heads and pointed their fingers at him and said, Surely if he's the Lord's anointed, why doesn't he save himself? And in doing that, Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So a blameless king is a gift to God's people. And there is no greater gift, no greater king than Jesus. The question that we all have to ask ourselves this morning is, are you one of God's people? Because a blameless king, a sinless king, a crucified and resurrected and coming again king is only good news if you've surrendered to him as your Lord. If not, it's not good news. If not, it means that he's going to come in judgment. So the, the way to belong to Jesus is not simply by agreeing with some facts about Him. Oh yeah, I know that Jesus lived and He was a good person. You can even agree that He died on the cross and God raised Him from the dead. Satan is aware of that. The demons know that. But they're not surrendering to Him as Lord. They're not trusting in Him as Savior. And so the question is, are you one of God's people? Have you surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Have you trusted in Him as your only hope? Are you turning from sin to follow Him? In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation, and this is our opportunity to respond to God's Word and to respond to the invitation and the command of the King. Paul said in his sermon in Athens that God commands 
everyone everywhere to repent. It's not a suggestion. It's not, well, here's one way you can get into heaven. There's a command. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how you have spoken. Lord, we're, th we're thankful for the ways that you promised that you're going to send a redeemer, a shepherd, a ruler, and how you pictured that through imperfect people like David. Lord, it's a reminder to us that your kingdom is one for imperfect people who put their trust in you and who turn from their sin to follow you. So Lord, would you help us to do that today? Would you help us, Lord, not to compare ourselves to anyone else except Jesus, that we would so have a holy fear of you, Lord, that we would not look around, but that we would look up and see how in light of your infinite holiness, we all fall short, we all fail, and we're all hopeless apart from the hope that you've given us in your son, Jesus. So help us, Lord, to look to Him in faith. And God, help us to be resolved to point others to Him. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.